How many of you guys know that when we gather together, together every single Sunday, uh, that there is an authority in this room? The authority in this room every Sunday morning when we gather, it's not your pastors, it's not teachers or anybody who has a microphone. The authority in this room is the Holy Word of God. It is the scriptures that are taught. And so as we come together and we gather, uh, what we're doing as a family every week is we are, we are collectively submitting ourselves to the same text that's being taught. But when it comes to the value system for the age of authenticity, the one that gets us all is that, is that uh, most of us actually want to live a life that is free from authority. Like our flesh like wants to live a life that is free from authority. But as followers of Jesus, listen to me, we have one simple claim as followers of Jesus. Our one simple claim is that Jesus actually rose from the dead and therefore all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And because of that, he is authority. He is, he embodies authority. In, in, in all authority has been consolidated into the person of Jesus. He is authority. It's our one simple claim. He, he rose from the dead and consolidated authority into himself. We either believe this or, or we don't. There is no middle ground on this. So because Jesus is authority, we who are, as, we who are followers of Jesus are now in conflict with a culture that says you can't be an authentic version of yourself and submit to the authority of Jesus at the same time. So I would just tell you that it really, 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 really matters that we become biblically sound and biblically literate because we are living in a biblically hostile moment, a biblically hostile world. This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk about a value that is very important to us, like very, very important to us. Over the last several weeks, we have uh, been in a teaching series that we are calling Building the House, uh, where we have been specifically speaking to the different values of who we are as a church, uh, the values that are unshakable, the values that are non-negotiable, uh, the distinctives of who we are and who we want to be, the things that we want to have exist within our DNA as a church. And so uh, what I want to talk about this morning is that next brick that we want to use to build this house. Uh, the, you know, each week we've been, you know, uh, in this series talking about different topics. Uh, and those topics, we, we've, we've mentioned, uh, we would view them like a, a, as bricks that we want to use to build this house. And so I want to talk about that next brick. And so uh, this morning I want to talk about, if you're taking notes, being a people who are submitted to the authority of Scripture. Being a people who are submitted to the authority of Scripture. This flies in the face of <clears throat> so much of kind of the, the cultural moment that we are in because we are people who do not like to be submitted to anything. Uh, we, we do not like to come under any kind of authority. It's part of that's just like the American way to, to a degree, right? It's, um, but we, we struggle with this in, 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 in you know, huge ways when it comes even to the authority of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So what we believe here at this church is that, is that the Bible is a whole lot more than just, just uh, um, you know, words on a page or a collection of, of ancient manuscripts that have been put together into one volume and, and bound. It, it's, it's unlike any other book in all of human history. We believe that the Word of God, uh, the Bible, is living and active. It's alive. That, that these are the very words of God to us, right? And, and, and so because of that, we believe that the Scripture is, is highly transformative for your life and for mine and for anybody who would dare read it and then apply it to their, to their life. And so I just want to make it clear to you, at this church, like, like we are people of the Word. We are unashamed people of the Word. The Scriptures are life to us. They deeply matter to us. They, they shape us. They tell us how to live our lives. How many of you guys know that when we gather together, together every single Sunday, uh, that there is an authority in this room. And the authority in this room every Sunday morning when we gather, it's not your pastors, it's not teachers or anybody who has a microphone. The authority in this room is the holy word of God. It is the scriptures that are taught. And so as we come together and we gather, 
what we're doing as a family every week is we are, we are collectively submitting ourselves to the same text that's being taught. We were coming underneath that text. We're asking God, through your holy word, would you change my life? Would you, would you affect me? Would you reveal things in me that, I, that I'm unaware of? You know? And so our job, our job is to align ourselves with the submitted truth of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit so that the Bible can come to full life in us and through us. Amen? So the story I want to get into this morning is from Luke chapter 24. And it's the story of two men who are living uh, in, in the immediate days following the death of Jesus. They are living in the aftermath of the crucifixion. These two men, they are deeply discouraged, profoundly discouraged, because they have literally put their entire hope into believing that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah for the Jewish people. And the only problem with that belief is that Jesus is now dead. And these two men, I mean, the, the Bible really paints this picture that these two men are, are um, experiencing perhaps the worst moment, the worst days of their entire life as everything they thought would happen clearly isn't going to happen because Jesus must not be the man that they thought he was. And so the Bible tells us that these two men, they, they, are, they find themselves on this, this, this road, this seven-mile road that spans from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And and as they are on this road, they are discouraged, they are downcast, they are distraught by the events that have happened in the previous few days. And out of nowhere, seemingly, Jesus appears himself. The story tells us, and he begins to walk alongside these two men on this seven-mile journey. The interesting piece to this story, the, kind of the important detail, is that these two men are supernaturally kept from being able to recognize Jesus. They, 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 are, they are somehow kept, they're unable to recognize that the man walking beside them is actually the resurrected son of God, Jesus Christ. And so they just assume that this is a stranger who is walking beside them. And, and as the story goes, as Jesus is journeying with these guys towards Emmaus, he actually begins to tell these guys why they shouldn't be discouraged, why they shouldn't be downcast, why they shouldn't be afraid, why you know, their hopes and their dreams should not be shattered, and he basically tells them that the events that have happened over the previous few days are the fulfillment of prophecy that was told a long, long time ago. And so scripture tells us, we're going to read this here in a moment, but that Jesus essentially opens up the scriptures to these guys. He begins to explain all the scriptures concerning himself that exist in the, in the Old Testament, and the Bible tells us these guys' hearts it's like, it's, like, it's like there's a fire burning inside of them as, as Jesus explains the scriptures. And so I want you to, to, to look at these verses with me. Luke chapter 24, 25 through uh, 32, Jesus is speaking. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, he's referring to the Old Testament. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and, the, and then enter his glory? And, and beginning with Moses, okay, this, this is a reference to the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that are written by Moses, okay? So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, these are the other uh, books of the Torah, okay? So uh, prophetic books, books written by prophets. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, all the scriptures concerning himself, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as, as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Catch this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. This is a clear picture of the Eucharist, the event that happened just a couple nights prior on the Lord's Supper. He, he's doing this with them. And when that happens, their eyes are opened. It's possible that these, that one at one, because we don't know who both of these were. One of these was a man named Cleopas. The other one, we don't, we're not given the name. It's possible he was, you know, close enough to, uh, to Jesus' inner circle that he might have even been there that night or as one of the disciples, or he at least had been told about, you know, the meal that they had shared. And so they, Jesus breaks the bread. It's this picture of the Last Supper, and their eyes are opened, and they recognize for the first time that it's Jesus, and then all of a sudden he does a Houdini, and he disappears from their sight. There's, verse 32 is really powerful here because they, it says they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? 
were not our hearts burning inside of our chests as he shared with, with us these things and explained the scriptures to us. It's a really interesting story. Um, I read this, and, and one of the things I immediately just begin to notice is, is how it talks about how beginning from Moses and, and the prophets, he explains all the scriptures concerning himself, and, and I feel like there's so much detail missing. You know, it's like, I want to know exactly what Jesus said. I mean, this is a seven-mile journey. How long did that conversation take? What exactly did Jesus say concerning himself? How did he explain the scriptures? I'd love to have a printout of that conversation so that I could, man, I could use that in talking to somebody, right? This is a, a pretty, pretty amazing story. What we do know, though, is that he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, and the result was that these men were left profoundly impacted, right? I want you to think about this story. I don't want you to write this down if you're taking notes or you can take a picture. The scriptures always point us to Jesus. They always point us to Jesus. Think about this, this walk. Think about this journey, this seven-mile road. Think about the conversation that is going on. Think about what they're talking about. They're talking about loss. They're talking about suffering, talking about cr crushed dreams and missed expectations. And in the midst of these realities, Jesus shows up and begins to explain to them the scriptures. Now look, over the years of ministry, my wife and I, we have had to walk with, with people through some pretty awful things. We have had to walk through our own fair share of awful things over the years. And what I'm telling you this morning is that there is only one place of hope. There is only one place of hope when you are in the, the midst of a conversation that is centered around loss and death and suffering and crushed dreams and missed expectations. It is the presence of Jesus found in the word of God. It's the only thing we can trust in the middle of the storms of life. It is the only thing that holds us together when life gets difficult. And what I just believe about this story is that there is an invitation here for you and for me. That, that there is an invitation from Jesus that says, hey, when you're walking through some difficult things, when you're walking through difficult times in life, Jesus is willing to show up. Jesus is willing to show up to you through the word of God. It's an invitation. It's an open invitation. Do, do, do you want this or not? Do you want Jesus to show up through the word in some of your most difficult challenges? And I just, I read the story and I just firmly believe that the road to Emmaus is available to all of us. Through the scriptures, there is this invitation into this, this, this life of Jesus this invitation to the presence of Jesus, to the transformation of Jesus, there's this invitation for you and for me. And, and as the scriptures get unpacked to us, as the scriptures get un, explained to us through the Spirit of God, as we, as we read the Holy Word, Jesus wants to reveal himself to you and to me in a way that we will say, was not my heart burning inside of my chest? Have you ever had a moment like that, I wonder? Have you ever had a time in your life, like, like, a, like a weird sort of, sort of spiritual season, like, like unlike other seasons where, where as, as you sort of ingested the word of God, as you read it, it was like these two men here who were, you could just say, man, man, it just, it just lit me up. It, it, was like, it was like something was burning inside of my chest. I remember um, a few years ago, uh, you know, the twins were, were still in cribs, and uh, I used to have to go lay on their floor uh, you know, and, and mess around with my phone for a while until they fell asleep, you know, because they would just like scream their heads off. And so I'd go lay on their floor. And I remember one night specifically, I, I just started reading the book of Hebrews. Hadn't spent a lot of time in Hebrews uh, over the years. And I just, I just start reading Hebrews. And I read Hebrews three times. It's 12 chapters. I stood up there and, and like I'm highlighting, I'm taking notes. Like it just like lit me up. And I remember, I think I, I, think I was even texting Matt that night. And I'm like, man, there's there so much good in here. And, it, it, and that was like in January. And, and I just knew that night, hey, that, this coming summer, we're going to teach through the entire book of Hebrews. It just came alive to me. And I was like, man, this stuff is so, so good. Have you ever experienced a time in your life like these two men where you would say, man, man, it was like it was burning inside of my chest as, as the scriptures were revealed to me. If you're taking notes, I believe that our hearts are meant to burn with passion for the very words of God that have been recorded in the Bible. I, I really, really believe this, that, that we're not to just see this as like text on, a, on, a, on, a, on some paper or bound in a book, but, that, but the, 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 the way we're to see this is like the very words of God spoken to us. The very words of God spoken to us. Now, I'm going to shift gears right here. And, and we're going to get a little like cerebral. We're going to get a little, a little bit more nerdy as we go. But I want to talk about two major issues uh, that I would, say, I would say 
are, are massive problems when it comes to, to the, having a passion for the word of God. Things that continue to get in the way in your life and in my life. There's two things. Now, there's probably more, more things we could mention. I think that the majority of things we would come up with would probably fit into either of these categories. The two things I want to mention today, one is biblical illiteracy, and two is biblical hostility. We're going to start with the first one, biblical illiteracy. Now, it is, it is just so common right now, um, maybe more than any other time in the history of the church, that, that, that so many people who, who are Christians just do not understand what the Word of God says. They do not understand what the Bible teaches. They, they, they struggle to even be able to explain the gospel, which, which is highly problematic if it has actually changed their life. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like unable to really, really explain the gospel to, to a perfect stranger, unable to give an answer for the hope that is, that is within them. And so we're living at a time where followers of Jesus are more biblically illiterate than at any other time, I, I would say, in the last 2,000 years. It's, it's certainly true in our culture, Right? Our culture has changed and transformed a great amount as the great secularization has taken place in our American context. Culture has shifted so much that it has produced a much more biblically illiterate people. The Bible used to be like, like at the center of our culture in a lot of ways in America that, that even if you weren't a follower of Jesus, even if you hadn't put your faith, hope, and trust in him, you, you, you still were living by you know, the, the, um, the, the, the morals and the teachings of Scripture. They, they, they framed so much of who we were as a society. Now, looking out and seeing like a biblically illiterate, you know, culture, it's somewhat acceptable. Like you don't expect people who don't, don't you know, follow Jesus or have an allegiance to Jesus to, to understand what the Bible says. But the place where it is much more harmful and scary is that we as followers of Jesus have become biblically illiterate ourselves and what we need to recognize is that if we are going to follow Jesus, we have to be a community that comes back to true biblical literacy. If you're taking notes, I want you to look at this thought with me. As followers of Jesus, are we not banking our lives, banking our hope, banking our convictions, banking our future on what we believe is recorded in the Bible? Are we not banking everything on this? Are we not? It's why we should know it. It's why it should know us. It's why it should live among us and it should do something to us. We have to come back to having a passion for biblical literacy that you and I as everyday followers of Jesus have a love for the very words of God that are recorded to us in the scriptures. Now, much of the reason why I would say biblical illiteracy has become so commonplace among us and in our culture is due to there being a massive cultural shift in how we view and understand and appreciate authority. And this reality and culture has heavily influenced the church, Christians, people who, who are uh, very much influenced by secular culture, right? I mean, we just, we live, we're attached to it. It's impossible for it not, not to influence us to some degree. And so there was a class I took years ago. It was called Teaching the Bible. And in this class, it explained what is called the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I want to explain this to you, if you can throw this slide up on the screen. The Wesleyan quadrilateral is a four-point hierarchy that informs our understanding of authority and serves as the basis of theological and doctrinal development. So it's developed by John Wesley in the 1700s. He's a, a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a church father uh, you know, of evangelicalism for sure. And he developed the Wesley, Wesleyan quadrilateral to to inform us of our, how we should understand authority and how we should develop things like theology and doctrine. And here's what it looks like right here. This is the, the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's, it's like a hierarchy. It's a pecking order. So he says, number one, we start with Scripture. This is the most important thing. This is the revealed Word of God that was, that, that was God-breathed. Wesley insisted that the Scripture is the first authority and contains the only measure whereby all other truth is tested. So when it comes to this pecking order of figuring out authority and understanding how to develop theology and doctrine, we start with Scripture, number one. Number two, he says, he says then, then we look at tradition. We look at tradition. So there have been people following Jesus for 2,000 years in nearly every cultural context in the world. There is 2,000 years worth of tradition of following Jesus that you and I should pay attention to. 
Throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been Jesus followers who were a whole lot smarter than you and I, and those followers of Jesus hashed out a bunch of deeply important theological and doctrinal stuff. So we are not starting at ground zero when we are born. There is a tradition, there is a history that has lived on before us. And so when we're born, we, we, we are a part of this tradition. We are rooted in not only an eternal, but in a historical reality of faithful followers of Jesus. And there is a great shared tradition that we are a part of that provides some necessary authority on how we live our lives. And so when we think about the history of the church, the tradition of the church, what has been true over the last 2,000 years, like we are not starting at ground zero in our generation. We understand that there is a history that has gone on before us, a way the church has lived and shown up, a way they have believed. And so, and so it informs how we live. So first we start with scripture and then we look at tradition, what has historically been true. And then three, he says, we look at, at reason, and this is our way of critically uh, thinking through things, right? Reason. Without reason, we cannot understand the essential truths of life, let alone Scripture. But what Wesley says is he says, um, he says that reason is not simply a part of our human existence. According to Wesley, he says that reason has to be assisted by the Holy Spirit if we are going to understand all of the mysteries of God. And so this is how it goes. We're trying to figure out authority. We're trying to figure out, you know, good theology and good doctrine. We got to start with scripture. Then we go into tradition and then then we reason. We critically think through this stuff ourselves. And fourthly, he says, then then we look at experience. What is my personal experience? What what is my personal thought uh, with this? You know, apart from scripture, let me tell you that experience is the strongest proof of Christianity that we have. Apart from scripture, experience is the strongest proof of Christianity ever. Although proof is sometimes complex, listen, experience is something that is very, very, very simple. John chapter nine, we have the story of the, of the blind man who Jesus heals, right? He, he takes some dirt, he spits into it, he creates mud, he puts the mud on the blind man's eyes, and, and the man is, is healed. He gets his sight back. Well, the religious leaders want to talk to this man. They want to know, is that the son of God? Was that the Messiah who, who healed you? Do you, you know? and, and, and the man says, like, I, I, don't, I don't really know. He goes, I don't know who this man was. He says, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. Right? This is his experience. He goes, I don't have like, good theology. I don't know, you know doctrinally who this man was. I, I don't know if he's, if he's the man from, you know, th- that the scriptures pointed to. But what I do know is I met him, I encountered this guy, and I was blind, but now I see. And so experience is the power of testimony. It's, it's this idea that I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know how to, how to put it into words, but, but this is my experience. This is what I experienced firsthand. And so that's how we develop, uh, according to Wesley, our understanding of authority, how we understand theology and doctrine is kind of through this pecking order. And it has to kind of flow in this order as well. The problem is that when it comes to authority today, the Wesleyan quadrilateral has been completely turned on its head. Completely turned on its head. We have completely reversed the, the role and the order of authority in our lives. And so it now looks like this. Let me show you the reverse order. It now looks this way, where where. Most people now start with their personal story. Most people now start with their personal experience. And then, uh, and then there's a thoughtful approach, you know, you know uh, beginning to think through this and, and, and reason through it. And then they tend to be completely ignorant of church history and even less understanding or aware of what the Bible actually teaches. Wesleyan quadrilateral has been completely turned on its head. And so it looks like this. This is sort of like, like, like an example of sort of how people talk. You know, it's, they, they would say something like, you know, I don't really know what the Bible says. You know, I don't really know what the Bible says. I, I'm not entirely sure what has been historically true in Christianity. I know that there were like some crusades and slavery and stuff. Anyways, here's what science and psychology says. But here's what I know. And here's my experience. And so we are living at a time where, where, where the Westland quadrilateral has been turned on its head, meaning that we start with our experience. We start with what, what we feel and, and allow that to inform everything else. And then we, we build a framework of, of how to understand authority and how to interpret scripture through this flow. And it's been highly, highly, highly problematic. The result has been biblical illiteracy in the church. Biblical illiteracy. You know, one, one of the examples we see in Jesus' life is, I think it's in Luke 4, where he, he is taken into the wilderness and he, he, uh, he encounters 
uh, Satan himself. It, it's, it's, he, he fasts for 40 days and then is tempted by the devil. You know the story. And, and uh, the devil continues to tempt Jesus when he is at his weakest moment. Trying to, trying to get Jesus to give up before his ministry even starts. And every time, every time the devil tempts Jesus, he, 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 he tempts him, he says, you know, if you're so hungry, why don't you turn this bread uh, or this, this stone into, into bread? And what does Jesus say? What are the words he says? He responds and he says, it is written. It is written. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy. And and I, I would just tell you, like, like there's three times where the, where, the, where the enemy tempts Jesus and he responds and he says, it is written, and he quotes a scripture from the Old Testament. I, I would just tell you this. I would encourage you to know the scriptures better than your enemy does. I would encourage you to know the scriptures better than your enemy does. That when you are facing, you know, different difficult decisions, when there are things you're trying to process and understand, that, that, that you, could, you could respond in the same way and be like, you know what, it is, it is written. Actually, that's not true. It is written, similar to like Jesus did in Luke 4, out in the wilderness. So this is biblical illiteracy, okay? The second major issue we're facing that continues to get in the way when it comes to our passion for the word of God is, number two, biblical hostility. Biblical hostility. We are living at a time where much of the world is, is incredibly hostile to the teachings of the Bible more than maybe any other time. I mean, incredibly, other than, other than you know, maybe uh, portions of the church where they were heavily persecuted for even holding a Bible, but we are seeing, we are seeing like, like incredible hostility towards uh, the teachings of the Bible in our day and in our American context. Uh, many of you, I mean, you, you know this, you see this, you experience this, you, you've, you've seen how, how the teachings of Jesus and, and the values of Scripture uh, really run in sharp contrast to the values of culture today. Charles Taylor, who was a, a Catholic sociologist, uh, or is a Catholic sociologist and philosopher, he's probably the leading voice on secularism in our world. And he wrote uh, a book, um, and I have not read all of this uh, because it's, it's not easy to read, but it is a, it's a book called The Secular Age. And in this book, he talks about how what has happened in our culture is what can be called, if you're taking notes, the age of authenticity. What is happening in our culture is what can be called the age of authenticity. It is this idea that the supreme value in our culture is being your authentic self. In the age of authenticity, the, the supreme value is being your authentic self. I want to tell you something right now, make something very clear to you, that the age of authenticity is, is incredibly hostile to the teachings of the Bible. We live at a time that says, like, hey, be your authentic self. Like, like, like find out who you really are. Discover yourself. It looks good. It sounds good. There, it, there is nowhere in Scripture where you find this taught. It, it actually flies in the face of everything it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because, because the reality is, like, like we're, not, we're not to be highly individualistic. Like we're, we're to be submitted to the authority of Jesus. Like, I, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I no, long, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, is how the, the scripture teaches. It teaches this idea of like, of, like, not individualism, but conformity into the image and the likeness of Jesus. And so what we see and experience right now, and, and what makes it very difficult to be a Christian, is that we are, we are running up against the values of culture that are colliding with the values of the kingdom of God, and we're not sure how to, how to, how to live this out the right way. We're not sure how to live it out. The right way. The tension we feel as Christians is that we're trying our best to live submitted to the lordship of Jesus, while culture is submitted to the lordship of authenticity, and these two continually clash with each other. The thought father, the thought father of uh, modern radical individualism, is a man by the name of John Stuart Mill, who was an agnostic, and uh, he once said this: "Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign." Now, the reality of a statement like this is that. There would be people in this room that probably agree with this statement. If not, I'm sure it wouldn't take you very long to find people outside of this room, outside of this building, who agree with this statement. I mean, this is, this is how um, uh, many people have tried to defend, you know, abortion rights, you know, that, the, the, you know, you're sovereign over your body. 
and, and, and it's felt like, like, a, like a very like left-wing thing and, and, and so, and so the government has you know, begun, begun to mandate you know, vaccines on people and now, and now the right is going, wait, wait, but I'm sovereign over my body. I have, I'm sovereign over my body. And, and, and like I've had people actually tell me this in, in, in uh, recent months, but I have, I have sovereignty over my body, don't I? And I, and I look at them and I'm like, like, tell me one place in scripture. Like, tell me honestly, like, like this is not what, what Jesus teaches. It teaches that we are crucified with Christ, that, that, that we no longer live, that our, our bodies are not our own. That, that uh, uh, I mean, Romans 12 tells us that, that, uh, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and that this is our, our spiritual act of worship, that we lay our lives down for him. And so what we're seeing right now, it's very confusing for people to even know how to walk this out, how to walk out the Christian life, because, because we, we are running into, you know, cultural values and thought patterns that, that run in sharp contrast to the kingdom of God and the values of Jesus. And so I want to just show you the value system for an age of authenticity here really, really quick. It, it, this, this is what it looks like. The value system for an age of authenticity is that you are free from a greater meta-narrative, you are free from religion, and you are free from authority. And so what it means for us to be, you know, fully expressive in this age of authenticity is that, you know, you have disconnected yourself from any form of meta-narrative that, that needs to describe who you are. Two, you've disconnected yourself from any kind of, of religious voice that wants to identify you. And three, you've disconnected yourself from any authority that wants to tell you who you need to be. This is the value system for the age of authenticity. I've shared this, this quote with you before, but it's always just uh, affected me at such a, such a profound level. But Mark Sayers says this in his book, Disappearing Church. He says, we are ex- what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. The enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. I once heard someone tell me, you know the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. The biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's, he's you. And so many, so many times we live our lives as if we are God, that we have the ability to make those types of of decisions. And so as followers of Jesus, we profoundly wrestle with this age of authenticity, don't we? Because like, it, it's in sharp contrast to, to the teachings of Jesus, uh, because we, we believe that there actually is a merit, meta-narrative that we are attached to. Like, it's the storyline of God and his people throughout history, that we're attached to a meta-narrative, that we are not free to roam on our own and chart our own path, that we are a part of a historic people that have lasted for 2,000 years, that there is a meta-narrative that defines us and that we are rooted in and a story that we belong to. As followers of Jesus, we wrestle with this age of authenticity because we also believe that, that, that we don't want to be free from religion. Like, we don't actually want to be free from religion. Now, like, to be clear, let me just explain what I mean. Like, we don't want religion that is legalistic, that is mandated, or, or that is, that is uh, false spirituality, uh, that is oppressive in any, in any way, we don't want to embrace all the baggage that comes with the word religion at all. But do we want to live our lives convicted by a deep sense of faith and spirituality in who we believe the person of Jesus is? Yes, yes, we actually do. Like, we don't want to be free from that. We want to be rooted in that. But when it comes to the value system for the age of authenticity, the one that gets us all is that, is that, uh, most of us actually want to live a life that is free from authority. Like our flesh like wants to live a life that is free from authority. It's, it's, it's prevalent. It's like, you know, we, we can maybe get by by rejecting, you know, that there's no meta-narrative or that we should be free from religion, but, but most of us, like, we actually like what that sounds like to be free from, from authority. But as followers of Jesus, listen to me, we have one simple claim as followers of Jesus. Our one simple claim is that Jesus actually rose from the dead and therefore all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And because of that, he is authority. He is. He embodies authority. In, in, in all authority has been consolidated into the person of Jesus. He is authority. It's our one simple claim. He, he rose from the dead and consolidated authority into himself. We either believe this or, or we don't. There is no middle ground on this. And so because Jesus is authority, 
We who are, as, we who are followers of Jesus are now in conflict with a culture that says you can't be an authentic version of yourself and submit to the authority of Jesus at the same time. And so I would just tell you that it really, 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 really matters that we become biblically sound and biblically literate because we are living in a biblically hostile moment, a biblically hostile world. Listen, if you're taking notes, you will not make it as a modern follower of Jesus unless you are rooted in the foundation of the scriptures. You just won't last. There's no way, there's no way to make it. The world does not value what you value to such a degree that unless you are rooted into Jesus and into his story, that unless you have a radical passion for the Jesus that we read in scripture, the way of the world will just simply crush you. It, 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 it you know, takes no prisoners, keeps nobody alive, crushes you. Now let me just, let me just give you some honest talk for a second. As a modern day follower of Jesus myself, I am as you are deeply, deeply, deeply connected to secular culture. Like I said a little bit ago, it's like almost impossible to completely avoid it. Like, like our, our thoughts, our way of, of, of thinking and living and, and operating, like we are people who are deeply connected to secular culture. And there are at times, honestly, where I recognize deep inside of me that I have given my allegiance to the person of Jesus and I have given my allegiance to the culture around me. And they're both demanding to make themselves Lord. There are, there, are, there are just obvious moments where I realize these two things are true about me. And they are both demanding to make themselves Lord. The tension inside of us that we feel, the reason why we wrestle with the Bible and the teachings of Scripture itself is because the question that being, that's being asked of us is this, if, if, if you want to take notes, what are you really submitted to? What are you really submitted to? Are you submitted to the lordship of Jesus or the lordship of the age of authenticity? What are you really submitted to? You can, you can really want to be submitted to the authority of Scripture, but if you, don't, if you don't know the Scriptures, if they don't know you, if they're not foundational to yourself, like how can you actually be submitted to their teachings? It's very difficult to know and to understand what the Bible teaches if you don't put yourself in environments where you can value it, where, where your heart can really burn inside of your chest for the truth that is revealed to you. Again, if you're taking notes, to follow Jesus in a post-Christian and post-truth world, we must reclaim a radical love and obedience to the scriptures because they are our primary tool for transformation. We often talk here about being uh, in, in a post-Christian culture or a post-truth moment. And in many ways, like, like we, we really are. Um, Middle America has, has maybe been the last ones you know, to, to, the, you know, to the scene. It usually happens at the coast and moves its way to us, to the Bible Belt. But I want to define what this means. The term post-Christian does not mean that there is no longer any Christianity term post-truth does not mean that there is no longer any truth. What, what, it, what, it, what it means is that it is no longer viewed as an, as an advantage to be a Christian, where at one time it was. It is, it is no longer an advantage uh, to be a Christian in, in uh, you know, the workplace or, or in your social life. It's no longer viewed as an advantage. Most of society today is not caught up with questions like, what happens when you die? Is there an eternity? Most people are just looking for you know, relief from the week and to have a good weekend. Most people are focused on, on like the immediate, the now, like today, getting through today, giving little to no thought towards eternity. And so what we see in the Gospels is we see Jesus walking around in his ministry, right? And what do we see him do over and over again? We see Jesus casting out demons, left, left and right. And, and in our modern culture, we essentially walk around casting God out. It's, it's, it's the complete reversal Jesus goes around and he casts out, you know, evil. He casts out demons like, like much of the world walks around now casting God out. Much of the world, much of the culture has, has, has attempted to exercise God from 
culture. Are you, are, I mean, you're aware of this, right? You're seeing this. It's, it's everywhere. And the result of this shift in culture, if you're taking notes, is that the church has been moved from the center to the fringe. From the center to the fringe. If you walk around any of our, of our major cities in, in our country today, what you will notice is, is that the churches and the cathedrals are at the center, in the middle of these, of these cities. The, the architecture of, of our cities, it reminds us that, that, that the church at one time was at the center of our civilization. But now it's been pushed to the fringe. I think that this has contributed to why many Christians have moved from having a public faith to having a private faith because of, because of the position that the church holds in culture now. It's very fringy. It's, 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 it's not valued at a high level any longer. If you think about it like this, you know, Christianity used to be, used to be just viewed as strange, like peculiar. Like, you know, Peter talks about how we are a peculiar people. Like, like that's been true of the church throughout history, that, that, that like there's, there's weird things about us. We, we believe things that are strange. Like, you know, the world looks at us and, and they used to always just view us as strange. Like, you know, oh, you, oh, you, oh, you Christians with you know, your, your eternal life and, you, you know, bringing Jesus back from the dead and all that and, you know, thank you for what you do for, for the poor and helping, you know, people who, who, who are, in, you know, in, in difficult times and thank you for the, you know, Christian holidays. We sure love to, you know, to, to you know, celebrate those. But it used to just be viewed as strange. Like, like, like who are these people? Why do, they, why do they love people like that? Like, why do they, why do they have character in, in, in places when, when nobody sees or, or, or watches, like why, why do they hold themselves with that type of, of uh, with, with those types of values to where now, uh, to be a Christian in, 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 in much of the world, specific, and, and specifically in the West, we are actually seen now as a threat. Not just strange, but as a threat. As a repressive people trying to impose our views and values onto others. In fact, David Kinnaman and, Dave, and, and Gabe Lyons in their book, good faith. This is what they, they say. They say the number one way Christians are identified in the world today is as irrelevant and extreme. The number one way Christians are viewed today, irrelevant and extreme. So the posture now is that people are completely terrified about what Christians believe. They believe that you and I are the root of everything that is wrong with the world right now. And let me just explain to you, this is what it means to live in a post-Christian moment. Moved from the center to the fringe. And so the result of the shift, the result of this shift is that we now feel the pressure to either condemn or celebrate the ideals of culture. Like we're stuck, we're stuck here trying to figure this out. So what do we do now as, as Christians in this modern context, in this modern moment? Like, like what do we do? We're either going to condemn the ideals of culture or we are going to celebrate them. We usually condemn the ideals of culture out of fear Truly, out of fear, by reacting in a way that doesn't represent Jesus very well, it's usually uh, on social media or some sort of public forum. Uh, we lash out against the ideals of, of culture this way because we want to condemn, we want to condemn, we want to condemn. Or we celebrate the ideals of culture out of a desire to just get along. Why can't everybody just get along? By thinking to ourselves and thinking out, out loud things like, you know, what's the big deal? Why can't we all just get along? It's not that, bit, that bad. Individual expression is a good thing. Who am I to judge? You do you. The more power to you, and the list just continues to go on and on and on and on. The result of this cultural shift is that we now have Christians who inter internally want to believe the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures, but externally feel so much pressure to question and doubt all of it, making it very confusing for them to pin down what the truth actually is. What the truth actually is is. This is why I firmly believe that we need to be people who have great knowledge of the scriptures, but it's more than just knowing what the scriptures say. We have to be people that know how to handle the scriptures correctly as well. People who know how to handle the scriptures as well. There's a verse here that's not on your screen, but it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I, I mentioned that scripture because I want to ask you, are we really submitted to this verse? Are we really submitted to this verse? 
Is that, what, is that the expectation? Are we supposed to greet one another every time we see each other with a holy kiss? Like, like of course not, right? That's how, so I just heard some of you like exhale. Of course not. Like that's how, that's how, that's how cults are made, right? That's how cults are developed. I mean like, yeah, guys, let's just, let's just do this. That's not at all what, what the scripture teaches. We believe that the scriptures are inspired and, inf- and infallible and in its original purposes and in its original intent. And so the original purpose for why Paul said this was because in, in Roman culture, that is how you greeted someone. It was common in Roman culture for you to, for you to greet someone with, with a holy kiss, but, but, but you only greeted people with a kiss who were of the same social economic status as you. So, so you would not greet uh, slaves with a kiss. You wouldn't, if you were a man, you wouldn't greet women with a kiss. It's the way it was. And so Paul... Uh, what, he, what, he, what, he, what, he is, uh, what he is saying here is that when you gather in, in, in this room as the church, you're no longer defined by your external social status, your external social class. You're, you're one in Jesus, so greet one another with a kiss in Jesus' name. That, that's, that's what Paul's getting at. So, so we have a responsibility to not just know what the Bible teaches, but to then handle it correctly, to be able to, to, be able to then take the scriptures and apply it to our life within the proper intent and context for why it was written that way in the first place. The truth of the passage is that we, we are one. We are one in Christ, and it doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, black or white, your socioeconomic background is irrelevant. We have a oneness in Jesus, and that is what binds us together. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here in the scripture. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to catch this thought. In order to be people who can handle the Bible correctly, we have to stop taking our theology from ignorant websites. And what I... I mean, Pastor Josh and I could tell you a number of stories. We've actually sat around and talked about this more than once, about the number of people who, who have developed their theology from blogs and websites, their beliefs on, like, core fundamental orthodox things from, like, a blog they once read. Because let me tell you, whatever you want to believe, you can go find a blog out there. Whatever you want to believe, you can go find a website out there that will support your opinion. That doesn't make it right. It may soothe your conscience, it may allow you to sleep at night because you found some supporting material to what you wanted the Bible to say. It doesn't mean it's right. And so in order to be people who can handle the Bible correctly, we have to stop taking our theology from all of these like ridiculous places. We have to be people who say, you know what? There is a trustworthiness I can depend on when I begin to investigate who God really is and what his scriptures really teach. Let me, let me, let me show this to you in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14. It says this, it says, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, but for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, okay? You know those from whom you learned it. Now, this is, what I, this is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there, that there aren't good books out there that you can read. I'm not saying there aren't good, good podcasts and things you, you can read that can be assistance to your spiritual development. But, but what, what Paul is getting at here with Timothy is he's saying, he's saying, you, uh, you should continue in what you've learned. You, you should continue in what you've been convinced of because you know those who have actually taught it to you. You know that we are trustworthy. You know, he said, Paul's saying, you know my character. You know the man I am. So, 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 so progress, move along in great confidence in this because I'm the one who taught it to you. And so th- this, is, this is what we're trying to say. To handle the word of God correctly, you, you need to make sure that, there is, that the vast majority of your theological development has come from people that you, that you know and have been able to learn from them, like, like your pastors and people like us. Verse 15, he's talking to Timothy, he says, and how from infancy, infancy you have known the holy scriptures which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's one of my favorite scriptures right there. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word right there, God-breathed, in the Greek, it's the only place we see it in the New Testament. The word God-breathed right there, it is, it's the only place we see it in all of Greek literature because Paul makes up this word. It's not even a word, he makes it up. In fact, something to know about the Apostle Paul is he does this like, like, many times in his New Testament writings because there's not a word for what he's trying to say. 
in the Greek language, so he, he, he creates a word here. And he says that, 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 that the testimony, the witness of these, these words that you are reading is that they are God-breathed. They're God-breathed. Let me ask you a question. What is the only other thing in our story as Christians that, that we believe is God-breathed? What is the only other thing in our, in our story, in our life as Christians that is God-breathed? Like, it's us, right? God breathed life into Adam. He breathed life into all of humanity, into you and into me. And this is where we get the Imago Dei. This is where we get the idea that we are, we are image bearers of God. We, we, we bear the very image of God. It's why we believe that life is sacred. Because life is a reflection of the fullness of the image of God. And what Paul's doing here in, in, in the scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 is he is saying that there is one other thing that got God's breath. There's one other thing that got God's breath, and it is, it is the scriptures. One other thing that he breathed on, it's the scriptures. Because he wants us to understand that when you and I open the Bible, when we come to the scriptures, that we're not coming to simple words on a page or to ancient manuscripts that were written hundreds and thousands of years ago. He wants you and I to understand that when we read the scriptures, we are coming before a divine presence. We're coming to something that can actually change us. It's the real, tangible presence of Jesus. And I just, I, just, I just firmly believe that we have to reclaim a love for the scriptures. We have to reclaim a love for the scriptures. But in order to do that, we will have to be willing to submit to its authority in our life. Let me, do, let me just say this to you, okay? And, and, I'm, and I promise you I'm getting close to the end, but like, you, you, gotta, you gotta catch this. Like, we have one hope. We have one hope, and that is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, and Paul, and all the other apostles and New Testament writers, our one hope is that they all got Jesus right. Because if they didn't get Jesus right, like all of this is for nothing, and we do not stand a chance. Our one hope is that these guys, thousands of years ago, who wrote these words on a page, who were divinely inspired by the breath of God, that they got Jesus right. The Bible, Bible, the Bible is either trustworthy or we do not stand a chance. There is, there is no, no, no middle ground. Now, what I want to say here as I close is I want to just give a little disclaimer because, because what is true and what has happened over the centuries is that there are people who have used scriptures to, to oppress, to harm, to injure, to cause pain, in people's lives, there are people who have built entire belief systems around distorted understandings of, of the words of God in the Bible. And I wanna just tell you today, like, like I reject with you any religious, legalistic, fundamentalists who wanna beat down culture with a sense of morality that doesn't look anything like Jesus. There are two Christian terms that we use doctrinally. Two Christian terms we use doctrinally. One is orthodoxy, which means right living. And one is orthopraxy, which means, I'm sorry, orthodoxy, which means right thinking. And orthopraxy, which means right living. You're only being faithful to Jesus when you are doing both of these things. When you are thinking rightly and you are living rightly. When you, when you, when you are under, understanding the scriptures correctly, that's orthodoxy orthopraxy is in living these things out the right way. And I want to just, just give you this thought, if you're, if you're taking notes, you want to read this along with me on the screen, but it just says this, we do not stand with people who may quote orthodoxy but look nothing like Jesus. In other words, they're, they're quoting the right things. Their, their interpretation of scripture is right. We don't stand with people who have good theology but, but they look nothing like Jesus, Okay. We also do not stand with those who say they want to live like Jesus, but then diminish orthodoxy. We desire to be a right thinking and a right living people. And the way we do this is through total submission to the authority of scripture. It's the way we do this. 
this is who, this is like who we are, okay? Like in a, in a big, big way. This is who I am. As long as I'm here, as long as I'm your pastor, this is how, how we do this, okay? We, we, don't, we don't stand with people who just talk, talk, you know, a, a good game, who, who may interpret scripture the right way, but then they don't, they don't live it rightly. They don't live it out. At the same time, we don't, we don't stand with people who, who just are all, all about Jesus and how, how nice and great and good Jesus is. And along the way, they just diminish orthodoxy. They, there's a departure from the 2,000 years of history that we have of the church. There's a departure of the 2,000 years of tradition of how the church has historically interpreted the Bible. We don't stand with those people either. We want to be a right-thinking and a right-living people. And the way we do this is through total submission to the authority of Scripture. Are you with me? Do you understand? Amen. Amen. Man. I'm just thinking for a second. Let me just uh, have you stand with us. Let me just tell you, if you, if you are in a lonely or discouraged season spiritually, it's quite common, it happens. If you are in a lonely or a discouraged season spiritually, you can't find the presence of God, it seems very difficult to find, don't know where God's presence is. Do you know that Jesus actually tells us how to find him? He tells us how to find him three ways. One is, is, is by um, praying with, with two, two, two or more people. Jesus says, if you, if, if you gather together in my name with two, two or more, he says, there I am with you. So, so you go and you start praying with, 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 with people. You find some friends, you start praying together. It, it's one way that you can find Jesus. Another way that we are told in, in, in the gospels of how we can find Jesus, how we can sense and feel his presence is by serving the poor. Jesus says, if you serve the poor, like there I am, you're serving me. The third way is through the word. It's through the word. Because Jesus, as the Gospel of John tells us, he is the word. He is the word. John 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then skipping down to verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so I just want to say to you this morning that, that, that anybody who is struggling, maybe with your faith, Maybe you're feeling spiritually lonely. Maybe you're asking hard questions about the Bible. You're not, you're not sure if it really says, you know, what, what you've been taught. And you're, you're trying to figure, figure it out. I just encourage you, dive, dive into six months of praying with two or more people. Dive into six months of, of serving the poor and dive into six months of reading the Bible. And I promise you, it will radically change your life. I don't think we would have one person left unchanged after six months. And this is, this is my last line right here. The reason why is just because Jesus is not hiding. He is not hard to find. We just often don't want to go where he is. He's not hard to find, church. Oftentimes we just don't want to go where he is. Like we don't want to go into pray with two or more. We want to do this thing on our own. We don't want to go serve the poor. We don't want to read the Bible. Jesus is very easy to find. This is a church where God is easy to find, right? Because we, we do these things right here. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here today and you would just say, you know, Pastor Jordan, like I, like I for far too long, like I have just, I have just allowed myself to become illiterate biblically. I, I, I need to take the Bible more seriously. I need to take the words of God more seriously in, in my life. And you, you want to be somebody who you would say that, you want the scriptures to come alive to you like these two men on the road to Emmaus. You, you, you want it to come alive to you to the point where it's as if the truth revealed in these scriptures is, is, is something's burning in your chest as a response to it. Can I just, can I just see your hands today? I, I just want to pray a special grace over you that, that, that God would give this to you, that he would give it to you as a gift from heaven. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now over every person with their hand raised. Every person who's just acknowledged right now that, that, that for far too long, we've just, we've just sort of taken life as it comes. We've, we've, we've neglected understanding the scriptures and, and, and have yet to really experience in our life that incredible moment where, where the truth revealed in, in, in your words and in, in the Bible 
uh, has come alive to us, God. I pray right now a special grace to understand and to know, to discern and to correctly handle the word of truth. To correctly handle the word of truth. I pray for a fire to just burn inside of us towards, towards the word of God that it would be something that we no longer neglect and just chuck and throw aside. But we, would, we would even remember that throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been men and women who gave their lives, who were literally persecuted so that this Bible could be handed down to us all these years later. God, I pray that we would hold it, that it would, we would cherish it. We would view it as like treasure that, 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 that we would not just, just let go of or neglect or let somebody else take from us, God, but we would, we would treasure it in our hearts. It would keep us from deep sin. It would keep us on the path we're supposed to live on, God. May we be a people who are submitted to the authority of your word, the authority of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.